Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Things are moving a little bit differently than you might be accustomed to. We are releasing more episodes, and most of that has to do with the current pandemic. We realize that in addition to the monthly articles in emergency medicine practice and pediatric emergency medicine practice, that there is a need for information regarding COVID-19. And that information is coming at us quickly as we struggle to treat our patients. And so we've made it our new goal to release episodes more frequently, weekly or bi-weekly, really as often as is necessary to try and share more information with you. And part of that endeavor is allowing for a method for you to communicate with us. And so there are two new ways to contact me. Both are in the show notes. One is an email address, amplify at ebmedicine.net, and the other is actually a phone number where you can dial in and leave me a voicemail. If there's something you hear that you want to comment about so we can share it at our next episode, please do. And of course, if there's any other feedback you want to leave, I look forward to hearing it. Today, we're going to spend some time talking with Dr. Colby Redfield. He's one of my colleagues. He's board certified in emergency medicine. He's also fellowship trained and certified in emergency medical services, which puts him in a unique position. He serves as the assistant medical director for a busy emergency department and a freestanding ED, and also provides medical direction for many of our EMS agencies. And that allows him to spend time thinking about not only the presentation of patients in the emergency department, but the complete continuum of their care from the moment they dial 911 all the way up until the time that they show up in the emergency department and hopefully progress home. So without any further ado, here's Colby. My name is Colby Redfield. I did my training at Beth Israel Deaconess Harvard up in Boston. Um, I also did my EMS fellowship there as well. Um, and after that, moved down to Florida. Now, Colby and I worked together, and I invited him on the podcast today to talk about just a few things related to coronavirus and how our area has been handling it very similarly to many other places around the country. Let's talk about the tent triage. Now, you were a particular fan of setting this up at our hospital and trying to keep people out of the department, the walking wounded or the uh, the worried well, as we sometimes refer to them as well, people who are not necessarily all that sick, but want to get seen and want to make sure that they're not dying or maybe a little bit anxious about their symptoms. Tell me the process that you set up. Yeah, we um, realized very early on that we could get overrun very quickly with this pandemic and trying to sort out, like you mentioned, the you know walking well or the worried versus the ones that truly need to be in the emergency department. So we were aggressive setting up our what we call the drive-through um, at our ER, and we can have a setup um, where we have to go into a parking garage. It makes a perfect choke point uh, for us to do our first assessment. And we have a trained provider, a paramedic or RN that can look at the patient quickly. And they asked initially the first two main questions was, do you have a fever or signs of a upper respiratory infection? Um, if they looked stable and said yes, they'd get diverted to our drive-through where they'd have a quick registration and we'd have a dirty nurse and a clean nurse and the dirty nurse would approach the car with a telemedicine cart and we'd have a physician on the other end interview the patient. During that time, it was up to that physician to decide to admit the standards for COVID testing and we actually had the capability at our ER1 to do both influenza and strep. Um, they would get their uh, whatever test they needed 
Um, and we already had pre-printed discharge paperwork that would give them and they get uh, shown out through the other way of the parking garage and actually never set foot in our ER. It um, reduced our PPE use significantly. Um, you know, at that time though, if they did show up at the, at the drive-through tent and they were sick or, you know, needed to be evaluated by the physician, they just continue through the parking garage and come right into the ER and the ER would be notified this is potentially a high risk patient for COVID or, you know, just coming in because they have a CHF exacerbation. And what are the questions that the staff member at the entrance of the parking garage or the parking lot is asking patients as they're coming in? We kind of expanded that a little bit more recently. Um, big thing for us was travel. We were fortunately enough to have a bubble around us for a couple of weeks uh, and a few other areas around us started having a big cases. So we, most of our positives initially were from those areas. So we added a lot of travel questions. Um, and then if you had any contact with a COVID patient, cough, fever, or just concern for COVID, I think is what we finally decided on. And these are questions that everybody who comes is getting asked, right? Regardless of why they're there, that's the first question, the first contact anybody has with these patients. Exactly. That's the first thing that we ask us to see if we can try to uh, put them in our COVID drive-through pathway. Now, this is something that many of the larger hospitals in the U.S. that have already been overwhelmed by coronavirus patients have, are already doing, but there are a lot of rural hospitals in the U.S. that are still experiencing that bubble-like scenario you mentioned earlier, where there are places in the state that might be very busy, but they just aren't seeing that many cases. And they may be interested in setting up programs like this and just worried about the number of staff it takes. But actually, it seems like it would require fewer staff to set up this process and adequately screen patients than it would to say, uh, have everyone out in triage wearing full PPE or to get everyone in triage potentially exposed to somebody as they're walking into the department before any of these questions have been asked. Actually, there's not that much staff that you need to actually have this run successfully. And as you mentioned, you know, not having these people up in the emergency department where we have to put on PPE, uh, which I don't think people realize if you do it correctly, does take some time. Um, I always, you know, I had had a little refresher before all this happened and I forgot how long it takes to take, you know, Don and Don off this stuff. Um, and so I think it's, it's great that we can, you know, keep them away from the emergency department and also use less staff in the process. One of the other things that we did early was open up a drive-through at an old shopping mall complex where primary care physicians could actually order a COVID test and it gets faxed over and the patient just shows up and drives through um, and gets that test. And, you know, the, the utility of the test itself, if they're positive or negative, these are walking well, probably not much of a difference in management, but what it did do is reduce our volumes coming to the emergency department. And that was where the, the value of that offsite uh, drive-through location for testing was for us. Even that offsite location was another similar tent-like scenario where there was a donned PPE-laden nurse already standing there waiting for someone to drive up and a second person who is not necessarily in full PPE but is the clean person to hand specimens and clean swabs to. And as, as soon as they have the faxed order, that patient's coming in and getting a quick swab and then being told to leave, all done in the privacy of their vehicle without ever actually coming into a physical building. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty impressive. And we, you know, we have about 100 patients a day that have been going through that on average. Um, and that's 100 patients that, you know, primary care offices tended not to want to see and would have probably been referred to our emergency department. So it was, it was a great addition to everything else we did to prepare for this. So in sum total, the requirement 
for the program that you set up here at the tent is one person to screen everyone coming into the parking lot, asking those key questions about travel exposure to somebody who has the illness or fever, cough, respiratory symptoms, and then two people sitting at a tent or alternate location outside, one of whom is donned in PPE and ready to swab the patient and the other one who's documenting and handing clean samples. That's a total of three people so far. Just three people, especially if the clean nurse can do um, registration. So that you might need to add a registration person if that, that skill set doesn't cross over. I know some of these rural ERs, they, they, you know, the nurse does it all, including registration. So they might be able to do three. And then there's the telemedicine component. Now, at this hospital, you're using telemedicine in a couple of different ways, but at the tent, there is a device, uh, an iPad or uh, some kind of uh, all-in-one device on a cart that they can roll up that's got speakers and a microphone so you can actually see the patient and you're using just simple person-to-person -person, uh, video software to communicate with the patient and the physicians on the other end and the physicians asking questions like what exactly? Yeah, it's very similar to doing your regular uh, H&P, actually, with these people uh, in the car. And, you know, he's kind of going through, you know, what brings you in today? You know, where have you traveled? What symptoms are you having? You know, I'm trying to rule out any, you know, as a ER doctor, I think, well, what could kill this patient in this car that they would actually need to see me in person? Uh, asking those questions, trying to find that, you know, that zebra uh, that's trying to hide. You know, everybody's thinking COVID right now. And, you know, we've had people where they, they've come through the tent um, and I had the pleasure of talking to him to find out that it was actually DKA. The reason why she was shortness of breath into Kipnik was because her blood sugar was 500 and she was acidotic, which could have been easily missed. Um, so it, it is a tricky, tricky thing for people that are not used to it. And it's just, you have to be very vigilant with your questions and just try to pick out that, you know, what could be the worst case scenario for some of these patients. Now you're not getting that blood sugar as part of the assessment vital signs in the tent before you telemed with this patient. Not this one. No, unfortunately I said, Hey, you know, Oh, you're diabetic. She's like, yes. I'm like when was the last time you checked your blood sugar? She was like, Oh, over two weeks ago. And I started seeing her breathing through the screen. I'm like, guys, he needs to get a blood sugar inside. And we brought her in. It was DKA, not COVID. So what vital signs does the nurse in the tent actually provide you with before the telemedicine call? It is a respiratory rate. It is an oxygen saturation. It is a heart rate. And that's as far as we go. Uh, the issue is, is we, when you do the BP, um, it's, it exposes the nurse longer. And it actually, when you look at just real COVID uh, related complaints, it's actually really not needed. Um, if you think you need to get a blood pressure on somebody, they're probably too sick to go through telemedicine and need to be seen uh, in the main ER. And then if you see them and you think they can go home, they can get swabbed or not, depending on the physician's order, and then the patient drives away. But what if you decide this person needs to come inside, then how does that person move from there to uh, a clean or non-clean space in the ED? So we have a um, radio system in our ear that we use. And so we, they just communicate uh, COVID-10 up to our, our pod leader. And they say, you know, we have a patient coming in. There is or is not concern for COVID, and the patient, if it is concerned for COVID, has a special entrance that we use. Um, if it's not, then they just kind of get treated like a regular patient signing in through the main ER. Um, we also have um, the telemedicine doc communicate with whatever doc that patient is going to be getting so they know what's going on and what the telemedicine doctor's concern was. 
And if the patient ends up going home, then the telemedicine physician has written something, some kind of templated document or screening exam or something is documented to show that the person came and got seen and vitals were recorded, that kind of thing. Yes, we have a telemedicine uh, template chart that we use for all of them. One of the things we realized early on was that they got a notice saying that if you were a negative test result, we were not going to call you. We we're only going to call for positives. Um, we found out very quickly, even though that was written in the discharge instructions, they would call every day to see if the test result came back. And when this initially happened, it was up to 12 days. So we actually had to bring on a extra staff member just to handle the COVID uh, QA calls. Um, but right now our volumes are down like most ERs. So we have some extra people that kind of slid uh, into those roles for us and are doing a great job handling all the patient callbacks. Now there's also telemedicine being used inside the department for suspected COVID patients. Tell me about that process. Yeah, we actually had a huge change in our flow a couple months ago where it's about teamwork and having more people in the room at once. We realized very quickly that with these COVID patients, if we kept our current nursing model uh, teamwork process up, that we would burn through our PPE very, very, very quickly. Um, so what we did instead is take the same telemedicine approach, but just put it back in what we call pod three. We'd have one nurse go in there um, in full PPE if there was any concern for COVID. Uh, she'd take the telemedicine card in. She'd take um, anything else that you would think she would need. You'd have a clean nurse on the outside. And then the physician or a mid-level provider would then interview the patient through telemedicine. And at that point, the physician, again, you know, asked the same questions, trying to figure out if there actually is real concern for the virus or not. And if there was, say, hey, guys, you know, everybody wear full PPE and do whatever needed to be done. We tried to limit as many people in the room as possible. And actually, there's sometimes you didn't even have to go in as a physician at all. And they just needed the test, maybe a chest x-ray, and then they could go. Now, I've seen a lot of chatter in the social media areas from physicians saying, you know, they're not using their stethoscope as much anymore because they kind of found that decreased utility, especially in suspected COVID patients. So when you're using the telemedicine device with patients within the department, there is a, a nurse in the room with the patient. What if you want to know what the lung sounds are like, you know, if it's a person who also has asthma or something, is there some method for that? Yeah, you know, I, I rely on the nurses exam there. Our nurses are amazing and they do a great job and they listen to lungs as much, lung sounds as much as I do. So, you know, I trust my nurses and they say, Hey, actually, you know, this sounds wheezy. I'll use that information for, for my gain and, you know, not have to re-examine the patient because I trust their exam. So the nurse has got a, a disposable stethoscope that they're taking in there with them that they can be used kind of at your, at your disposal as well. Yeah. The nurses do have their disposable stethoscope that they use. One of the other aspects of telemedicine that we're starting to work on in the hospital is when we do get our surge is outpatient telemedicine from people that we discharge uh, and trying to follow them up closely to make sure that they, you know, follow the healing curve or following the, the curve correctly. Eventually, you know, we're, the concern for us is that we're going to hit maximum capacity, capacity in our hospital. We're going to have to make decisions on who can be admitted and who needs to go home. And one of the ways to try to make sure the patient is safe is to have that telemedicine component on the back end that I'm actively working on now. And that's really just a method to do a follow-up checkup in 24, 48, 72 hours with a patient to make sure that they're improving and not getting worse so that you don't have to initiate another ED visit for that same patient or that you can capture them before some bad outcome, right? Yeah, exactly. And we're doing, it's actually a tiered response that we're going to look at with your initial 
tier two response would be at 24 hours, we'd have some trained provider out there, either a paramedic or RT or nurse. And then you have a telemedicine uh, consult with the physician and they just follow up on the patient to see how they're doing. Um, that way we can get a set of vital signs, get a pulse ox, have somebody with a trained eye actually see them in person and kind of see the living conditions they're in too, right? It'd be one thing, you know, we can all dress up and look, you know, well in front of a camera. Um, but, you know, what if there's, you know, houses in squalor around it and you don't realize that and that's just a bad setup for the patient. So I think it kind of serves two purposes there. Both the tent and the telemedicine protocols actually provide methods to reduce the overall usage of PPE, something that every hospital is dealing with right now throughout the entire United States. One of the ways that people are choosing to reserve or conserve PPE is reusable masks and then sterilization of masks. So what have you seen or what are you using so far for uh, the hospital provided like N95s and uh, surgical masks? Yeah, the, we were very aggressive early to start our uh, utilization of N95s. We had some very smart people that came up with a method to use uh, UV light, and that's our main approach right now at the hospital. I know there's that study out of Stanford where you can actually, with the N95s, can actually use heat at, I think, 70 degrees Celsius for 30 minutes, if I'm correct, and that is uh, very effective as well. It still keeps integrity, integrity of the mask. And so that's UV light sterilization uh, for multiple times, I think up to five, right? Yes. At the fifth time that mask is getting disposed of and a new N95 is being used and you're, those masks are getting recycled back to the same people, right? So I'm not having to use necessarily an N95 that you used the last shift in case there was an issue and you suddenly come down with a fever tomorrow or something like that. Yeah, we made sure it was the same person uh, that used the same N95 every time. Um, we realized early that if we didn't put people's name on it, they were going to be hesitant to reuse those masks. And then the, the surgical masks, you're doing a, a similar process, right? The, they've got a, a, you've got a crew of people who are sewing masks out of a material that was traditionally used for surgical instruments coming to the hospital that have been sterilized. And these masks are now being used for staff members in place of just disposable surgical masks? Yeah, we took the old N99 wrap around the um, surgical instruments. Um, we can obviously, they need to be able to handle high heat with an um, autoclave for all the instruments. And so we've been using that, and you wear that for three shifts, as long as it's not soiled. Um, and then you can get that uh, autoclaved and get it back on your next shift. And that helps reduce our use of our surgical mask. Uh, that are disposable pretty much after 24 hours. And now there have been some physicians and even some nursing staff who are either being uh, gifted masks, being given masks, or have purchased their own reusable masks that are the, the 3M type respirators with the filters. And there's been a lot of talk about that as well in emergency medicine in general. But these masks have the removable filters. Some are padded, some are cartridge type, and then the rest of the mask or respirator itself is either a full face or a half face a reusable mask that can be wiped down with a uh, bleach type material or some other approved material against coronavirus and then reused. And some providers have said that they find those to be more comfortable if they're having to wear the same mask during the entire shift. So if you're at a center where you are not seeing uh, sporadic volume, but you're actually seeing sustained volume of potential COVID patients and you're in the same mask and PPE 
throughout your entire shift that you're not removing it for every patient. These things can actually cause a lot of skin breakdown on your face. And so people have moved from just the traditional disposable N95 masks to reusable masks that were actually approved for manufacturing, you know, areas where people have to wear masks all day long. And so they uh, have provided for more comfortable masks and, uh, and they just simply remove the cartridges. But there's been a lot of question about how do we apply these in healthcare. And as a brief summary, you know, if you don't already know, in the early part of February, uh, the FDA did send a letter to the CDC saying that it's okay to use these devices and gave specific approval for these devices. And then the CDC has really built a robust uh, website around the types of masks that can be used, the types of cartridges they recommend, how that most of these filters are actually superior to just a standard N95. Uh, there are the, the N100s, the P100s, and the, uh, the alphabet soup there can get a little bit confusing. But in brief, the, uh, the N is really just a, a simple filter. The P is the particulate filter that also is resistant to oil and, uh, and actually provides a little bit more of a hardy filter than we would traditionally need in a healthcare setting where there's not a bunch of pollution in the air. Uh, but regardless, these things come in cartridges that can be wiped down and then reused. So there is a summary that I'll post in the show notes to a link that has all of the necessary FDA, CDC, and even the OSHA letters and recommendations, along with a little bit of a summary on how to wipe these things down. You just got to remember that if you've got the exposed padded filter type cartridges on your mask, that you can't wipe down that material with a liquid. If the actual filter itself is encased in plastic and it's a cartridge that's removable, you can wipe down the exterior of the cartridge and your mask and put it back on and safely go on your way. And those things can last quite a long time. The manufacturer, like uh, 3M, has actually said you could wear them for up to 40 days in a heavily soiled environment. But most of the people who use these will tell you also the instructions say the effort of breathing through these cartridges becomes more when the cartridge is so soiled that the filter is impeding your airflow. And that's another method to tell, oh, okay, it's time to replace these cartridges if it's been less than 40 days, but you're in a very heavily soiled environment. But that's not likely to happen in the hospital. We don't have a lot of dirt and oil and other chemicals in the air. We're trying to filter out virus and droplets. And in that kind of environment, these things can last quite a long time. So I'll put that link in the show notes for more information. But if you're in that situation, just know that there is indeed some information to help guide you about what you can clean your masks with and what you can use as far as the cartridges go. Now, Colby, you said earlier that you're a fellowship trained in EMS as well. So when we talk about EMS and the transition of patients from the uh, ambulance into the emergency department, there have been some containment concerns and other issues and things that our EMS colleagues have had to think about that honestly I don't think about on a daily basis. For example, we get people in respiratory distress who are coming in on a CPAP mask from EMS and now they've got to come into the department. And before we didn't really think about this, but now there are some advanced preparations we have to make. So tell me how that thought process is going for you on the pre-hospital side, and then we can talk about the transition of that care into the emergency department. I mean, it really all starts from dispatch, so your PSAP centers, and um, having them ask the questions initially before my crews get on scene. Because, um, you know, if you don't have that information beforehand, you could walk into some uh, scenarios and be exposed pretty quickly. So having that dispatcher ask those questions. 
one of the things that we've done very early around here is that we've had the patient actually try to meet us outside and then limit the first contact to one provider, paramedic or EMT, to go and ask them the questions. We went quickly to early notification of ERs if we suspect a COVID patient. We call it a code line around here. I did quickly adjust my protocols as well. Instead of doing NEB treatments, we're going to IM medications such as IM epi and tributylene. Seem to be older school, but because we don't analyze anything, we're trying to use those methods. We're allowing for happy hypoxemia um, unless you're looking at the patient and not really the number. And so, you know, aggressive nasal cannula, even a non-rebreather, but if they look in distress and you do need to intubate them or, you know, change to a more aggressive modality such as CPAP, I actually instructed my crews at that point that you need to put a breathing tube in uh, with a viral filter to protect them. I also have a program where we're at where we have our RTs actually going to meet these people on BiPAP or CPAP in the ambulance bay, if possible, to switch them to one of our closed circuit BiPAPs so we don't infect a lot of people. The, the medics themselves don't necessarily have any of the closed circuit equipment on the, on the ambulance by, uh, for transport care. Is that right? Unfortunately, um, everybody's trying to buy it right now, and it, you just can't get it. And, and it's one of the struggles um, that I'm dealing with in the pre-hospital world, how to protect my crews. Um, we went very uh, early on um, masking everybody, um, as well as my crews, even when they're in their stations, because the last thing that I can handle in one of my rural counties is, you know, if I lose, you know, two or three paramedics, I, I don't have a lot of extra. And I could actually have to shut down uh, ambulances and actually um, reduce my responses uh, to the to the county. Now, the the crew does have access to the viral filters pre-hospital? It, it really depends on who, when, when you ordered and who you order them through. And some agencies do, some don't. And if you're listening and you're not familiar with what we're talking about, uh, the EB medicine issue on COVID-19 has some, some great pictures about viral filters and how to fit them to peep valves and CPAP devices. Uh, but basically what we're talking about is a small little filter device that goes in line with the mask and the tubing to try and basically filter the air coming out of the patient and out of the mask and capture any viral particles before it's either exposed to the air, uh, or if you have a closed circuit system before that air is then pulled away from the patient. Now, when this patient comes to the emergency department, say your crew is coming and has notified me, you mentioned there are some plans in place to have a respiratory therapist then meet the crew, and what's that protocol like? Right now, they call us and notify us that they have somebody on CPAP. Um, at that point, we let our respiratory therapists know, and they actually um, get in full PPE, and they actually bring the, the BiPAP vent downstairs to the parking garage, uh, and they'll actually transition them down there into a closed vent, and then they will go then transport the patient up to one of our negative pressure rooms so we can figure out if this is a COVID-related issue, if this is a you know active airway issue or some type of cardiogenic shock or CHF. Great. And that's kind of the important piece of the communication there, pre-hospital to hospital to say, we're bringing in a patient who screened positive on these questions or has these particular symptoms that are worrisome. Can you have the respiratory therapist meet us? And if your drop-off site is not very close to the emergency department, then that respiratory therapist needs to kind of foot it over there and get gowned up. You need sufficient heads up that this is going on so they can be down there and ready for the patient. And then when they come into the emergency department, that person's going into isolation, I would assume, until 
the rest of the uh, evaluations done and you can determine if that's a COVID patient indeed. Exactly. And one of the other things I forgot to mention earlier is that I implemented a, a aggressive no transport COVID policy that allowed EMS not to take people to the hospital. It's kind of a change in practice. Uh, generally, you call and they and they will bring you to the hospital. And this was put in place so they didn't get overrun with people that just wanted to be tested for COVID. Um, you meet these certain criteria or certain stable vital signs and age. And uh, they would say, okay, well, here's your resource where you can go and get tested, but we, we're not going to transport you to the ER today. And that helped limit exposure as well. A few weeks back, we talked with Dr. Duca in Italy, who was kind of in the thick of it. And he mentioned that his EMS crews in that area would screen patients for vital signs and hypoxia. And if their SAT was over 90% and they weren't in distress, they would not transport. Now, he was in the middle of one of the worst disaster zones for a coronavirus that I think anyone in the world has experienced. So what criteria are you using for the medics to decide if they're going to transport? Is it a specific SAT or vitals or symptoms or a combination of all those? It's a combination of all those. Definitely not that aggressive. One of the things we did is we put an age cutoff of 50, um, respiratory rate under 22, oxygen saturation of 95 and above heart rate of 110 or lower, um, you could have a fever. That was not one of our uh, fallouts. We said, you know, if you're going to have a coronavirus, you might have a fever. They, we'd be transporting everybody, so we took that out. And then also, you know, no severe chest pain, shortness of breath, anything like that that would make you worried for the patient. And that's really, you just described the the walking well who would normally come to the tent and be screened there and maybe get tested and then sent home and told to isolate until we knew further. Exactly. That's exactly who we're keeping on scene. Well, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. It's a lot of important work you're doing out there. And for all of you hospitals who are not overwhelmed, the tent protocols, the, the telemedicine devices, and the judicious use of PPE is really essential at this time when things are in low supply, especially all over the country as we struggle. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks again to Dr. Colby Redfield for joining us this month. I want to take a moment and remind you that this month's emergency medicine practice issue is on vision problems. And if it's been a while since you've reviewed the approach to things like central retinal vein thrombosis or differentiating it from central retinal artery occlusion or even idiopathic intracranial hypertension and cranial nerve palsies and cavernous sinus thrombosis, amaurosis fugax, myasthenia gravis, so many different disorders that can affect a patient's vision. It's really a tremendous article, and all of these are covered in depth. I highly recommend it. Also, don't forget, amplify at ebmedicine.net or use the phone number in the show notes if you prefer to call and leave a voicemail instead. And that's it. Until next time, stay safe.